0: Tonight's New Testament reading can be found on page 2 of your bulletin, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 33. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open up um, not only our eyes, but the eyes of our heart. We pray that you would renew our minds by your spirit, whom you generously poured out upon your church at Pentecost, and by your word. And we thank you in advance for that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are rolling along in our Theology and Life series, and this evening talking about marriage roles. And I think you can basically break them down, generally, into three categories. Uh, The first model of marriage roles uh, is often referred to as patriarchal. And I would say it's a lopsided view of marriage roles. It essentially makes the husband uh, the sole power holder and sole agent in the marriage. So there's not much power sharing And in its worst expressions, there's excessive authority, domination, and even abuse that occurs. Those that hold to this position often will appeal to verse 22 and 23, the verses that say the husband is the head and the wife should submit. But many times they ignore verse 21 that we had read, that teaches that the church submits, that all Christians submit. The second view is referred to as egalitarianism, and I would say it's a flattened out view of the roles. Uh, While there's equality before the man and the woman, there's no diversity. So basically the role of husband and wife are regarded to be identical, and any uh, suggestion of leadership might be taken as injustice. Now. Folks that typically hold to this view will hear the passage we just read and say that Paul is addressing a particular problem in Ephesus. He wasn't making a universal statement. And they might refer to the book of Galatians that says there's no male, female uh, in the kingdom of God, but not seeing that those verses actually refer to salvation, not marriage. But you can understand where the egalitarian movement came from basically as a counter to ages and ages of the suffering of wives in the hands of dominating men. And so it should be commended for that work. But it's not without its shortcomings. I was reading this past week, an article in the New York Times magazine, and it came out just a couple years ago, and it was referring to research and data that suggests that egalitarian marriages report less enjoyment when it comes to sex. Less enjoyment with physical intimacy. Here's a quote. Research suggests that too much similarity in egalitarian marriages leads to boredom and decreased sexual frequency. The less gender differentiation, the less sexual desire. In other words, in an attempt to be gender neutral, we may have become gender neutered. And so if... If you allow me to generalize and say, basically, we've we got these, these two poles that are happening in our culture right now. And as I've said before, the tendency, typically, you can imagine a boat, is when we see an extreme on this side, we run to the other side, not the middle. So the boat is always going like this, but the, and it can't float. And so what does it look like to have a position that reflects, I would say, the holistic part of the Bible, the Scripture. And this is referred to as complementarian views. The view of complementarian is that men and women are created equal in the image of God, but they're not equivalent. They have different roles, different strengths that complement one another. We're going to unpack that in a moment. But I want to say on the front end this. Far more than the value that a complementarian view gives in marriage there's something more it gives us. It teaches us about Christ's love for the church. It teaches us about God's love for his people in a way, I would say, that a patriarchal or egalitarian view cannot teach us. And it's very important to remember that that is the primary thing because complementarian view understands that marriage is temporary and it's a pointer to something greater, the spiritual marriage between God and his people. So as that heavenly light shines down, we can then begin to understand how does that work its way out in earthly marriage, which is what we'll do now. And I want to do that by looking at two points, the distinction in marriage roles and then the transformation that occurs in marriage roles. Okay? So let's start with the distinction. Now, last week I had mentioned uh, that sexuality in the Bible is not just the idea of an act of sex, but it refers to maleness and femaleness, okay? The Bible now doesn't give us a comprehensive list of what that looks like, does it? And when we try to get too specific, we move into stereotypes. If we want to say, well, actually what it means to be a woman is to mean, uh, a woman means you're always sensitive and you talk a lot. Well, there's exceptions to that. Because I know many marriages where the man is more sensitive and talks more. Or what it means to be a man is that you can fix things, right? Well, there's plenty of marriages where that's not the case either. There's lots of stereotypes that abound, right? And so the challenge is to ditch the stereotypes, but not dismiss that maleness and femaleness is. There is something about maleness and femaleness. Um... I was thinking back to a comment made by a man who spent uh, a large part of his life as a gay man in the gay community. And he became a Christian and uh, moved out of that community, started a ministry with other gay men. And um, he, at one point, felt led to get married. Now I'm not suggesting that same-sex attracted people uh, are all called to be married, but he felt led to be married. And he, when someone asked him, explain this to me, how could this be? He said that his wife called out what was masculine in him. It's a very interesting idea. And again, qualification, not suggesting you have to be married to have masculinity or femininity. Not saying that. But rather, there was something he discovered about masculinity. My argument is that it is present. There's something there that we can't dismiss. In fact, we need one another, the opposite sexes, to understand it. We need them to understand it. Uh, Dan Allender says that the differences men and women bring relationally together make individuals more than they could ever be alone. You know, I would say personally that I have come to understand more of my maleness by living with a wife, daughters, by being a son to a mother and being a brother to a sister. In fact, sometimes my wife or my sister recognize the need for me to see my maleness before I do. Because they, they say, you know, there's something about who you are and what you're called to do that I think you're not doing right now. We'll get to why that happens in a moment. But what can be said about the differences? If we don't want to get into the stereotypes, what we can say? Well, I think there's a couple things Scripture does lead us to understand. First of all, in Genesis 2, we read that, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That tells us something critical that needs to be the banner over this entire discussion. And that is men and women jointly reflect the image of God. That means this. If tomorrow all the women on the earth vanished and there were only men left, or tomorrow all the men on the earth vanished and there were only women left, there wouldn't be 50% of the image of God left. There would be 0% left because we are only the image of God corporately. And you could even expand it to say every tribe, tongue, and nation, every race. We as a people image God. But then we can move into some specifics the Scripture suggests in Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. So Adam is created with a design deficit. This is before sin enters the picture. He has a design deficit. God says, I will make a helper fit for him or complimentary for him. You've heard me say before. You've heard other people say before. That word helper isn't mommy's little helper. The person that is helper in the Bible is God. Israel's helper with a capital H. In fact, that term has military overtones. So it's a power word that's being used, okay? That the wife has power. And Ephesians would say that the wife arranges and aligns her power. She arranges and aligns her power to help her husband. That's what's meant by submission, okay? That's basically what's being talked... A a concept that is oft misunderstood and derided, submission, And that's why I had purposely had us read more of the passage than just the marriage passage. And I would say whenever you think about marriage or refer to it, people, don't just start at the wives submit because you've missed actually the context of the passage, where in verse 21 it says it's characteristic of the entire Christian community, as I said before, that they submit to one another, all right? So while a wife may model submission specifically in a marriage, she does not model it exclusively. I would say in the case of a married man, I have a role to lead as a husband. I also have a role to submit as a brother because this is characteristic of all God's people. Even in the marriage passage, it says the church submits to Christ. And Christ is the model of that. You know, I'm convinced that a lot of the talking past one another, And a lot of the distortions in those polls I talked about really come from, and I'll say within the church, Christians being more shaped by the culture's categories and the culture's definitions rather than Scripture. Because there is no way that you can read about the way Jesus does authority and believe that it means domination. There's just no way. Or submission. Jesus is equal to God the Father, but he submits to the Father. You know, he even washes the disciples' feet that are beneath him. And so we really need God to renew our minds. We need him to, you know, we we need a new lens than just the culture. Now, what about the woman? In Genesis 3, Adam calls Eve the mother of the living. And from that we can deduce she is small c, creator of relationships a creator of relationships, and not just biologically. I think it only makes sense that it moves into uh, her ability to nurture, form, sustain relationships. Um, In the book of Thessalonians, Paul says, the apostles were like a mother who was tender to you. This idea of being able to come along with tenderness and compassion, but strength for the sake of relationships. And I would say, you know, women, again, you could say maybe naturally you don't do this. But that's okay. You know, we're going to get to sin in a second. But a a woman is adept with a vision, a passion, a skill for fostering sustaining relationships. In my own marriage, I see it this way. Dinner time rolls around. And I say, yeah, why don't we just, like, eat watching TV? Or why don't we eat just standing up? That's good, too. And Meg will be like, you know, no, we need to sit at the table as a family. You know, she regularly is calling us back to the relationship side of our family life. It's been said before that if you look at men and women leading, you know, out in the marketplace, women leadership excels in interdependence. That is, women typically are much better at building teams, right? Men tend toward independence, not so great at building teams, but more about maybe achievement and goal for them, which gets us to the man. we got helper for the woman, headship. Headship, what does it mean? It means responsibility. That's a fair translation of that term. God gives authority to be stewarded. Where do you see that with Adam? Adam's created first, Eve is taken from Adam, and then Adam, as he blesses Eve with that name, he bestows the name upon her mother of the living. So he's acting as a priest in his own home. But as someone in our church recently said, headship is not lordship. Headship is not domination. It's responsible leadership. And the way we understand this is because the template we're given in Ephesians is he lays down his life. So how is the man supposed to exercise his headship and authority? Just like Jesus, he lays down his life. Now, if you think about that, We ask ourselves, why does he do it? The passage tells us to sanctify and present the church as blameless. All of that is basically shorthand for so that Christians might flourish. Why does Christ lay down his life? It's so that believers in him might be recovered from sin and the damage of sin, and they might flourish into full strength, that they might blossom. If you are a Christian and you followed Christ, I have to believe that's your testimony. Has Christ made you more of a whole person? Has he set you free? Have you come to understand your worth? Have you come to understand your gifts? That's what it means to flourish, and that's what a husband is supposed to do with a wife. Paul says he should love his wife as himself. Well, what does it mean to love ourselves? We love ourselves. We think about what we like. We think about our dreams. We think about our aspirations, right? That's all what it means to love yourself. And so he's saying that a husband uses his authority to lay down his agenda, that he's conversant with his wife's dreams, her gifts, her desires, and he lays down so that she might flourish in those things. Too many people that come from the patriarchal side Uh, stop at the idea of headship and never move on to the rest of the passage. But there's one more thing we can say about men. The man is said to move out into creation and shape. We get this picture in Genesis 3 that he's working the land. This idea of he seeks success through building, through achieving, that leadership and independence. So, in summary, let me put it this way. The vision you have of Christian marriage is this. A wife who voluntarily enters into a covenant... And by using her power, aligns her life under her husband, who is laying down his life so that she can flourish. And when that is working, it's something that is beautiful. In many ways, I, I wish, you know, I, I could take everybody that struggles with this, either because you've, you've been hurt, you know, saw a bad example, experienced a bad marriage, see what's in the world. I'd love to just put you in a Christian home for a year where a husband and wife are trying to do this. It would answer so many questions. Like, well, isn't this domination? Well, no, I see him. Megan and I were talking about this over dinner. Um, you know, we said, well, what does this look like in our marriage? And I, and I sort of foolishly said, <laughs> I said, uh, well, you know, yeah, I've definitely seen you submit. I think it's a couple times over our marriage that, you know, I've seen that really clearly. And she said, you kidding me? I do it all the time. <laughs> and I said, well, give me an example. And she said, for instance, you know, we're having a debate about when uh, our daughter should finish her homework. And Meg says, I think she ought to get it done by 7.30. And I say, I think 9 o'clock's fine. And we go back again. Well, how about this? 9 o'clock's fine. We go back again. We go back again. And then, guess what? She gives me the last word. She said, that's me practicing submission. I could come back around and debate and maybe prove you're wrong. But for the sake of the marriage, what I do is I say, okay. I said, well, what does it look like service for me? Of course, right? Because I don't want to... Uh, not have something to say about myself and uh, service for me. And I thought about this. You know, Meg has really been uh, the visionary for education in our family. And so uh, this past year she said, listen, I think it would be really good if you uh, taught a seminar for our daughter and another uh, gal that were finishing their last year with some homeschooling. And I was like, ah, I don't think that's a good, you know, all these reasons, you know. But she just used her power because what it means to submit doesn't mean that you roll over, right? I mean, I can tell you so many times where Meg, well, I'll get to this in a moment about sin, but she has been the one. She uses her power to engage me, and you know, I ended up doing it, and I'll tell you, it it was great. And what God did was he actually gave me an opportunity to disciple my daughter, and she didn't know it, right? Because she had to do it for a class. <laughs> or another thing might be investing in our greatest asset, with the, with, which is our home. Meg said, you know, I think we need to do this, and so I spend hours trying to fix stuff or do stuff even though I'm not that good at it. But that for me is this idea of, well, okay, I'm going to lay down and serve because God is using her gifts and flourishing. Kathy Keller says this, the basic roles of leader and helper are binding, but every couple must work out how that will be expressed within their marriage. And that even plays out differently culturally. So, uh, but the ultimate goal with this, before we move on to the last point, the ultimate goal of this isn't just pulling off distinctive roles, because you know, in the book of Genesis, when the man, when Adam sees Eve, he says, At last. At last. Right? I had this d- design deficit, but now there's someone who is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, who we will complete one another. Man shall leave his father and mother, right? Join with his wife. And, and that gets into the importance of leaving and cleaving, which again looks different for different cultures. This is where our culture, it's it's tough for folks to comprehend because in our mind, we think if you can have oneness in a marriage, that means someone has to be half and the other person has to be half. But God has a whole different kind of math. One plus one equals one. Two whole people come together and they become something new. But let's move on to the transformation thing to wrap this up. A little shorter on this. In Genesis 3, the curse of sin also... Plays out in maleness and femaleness. Uh, The effects of it happen differently. The male struggles with feeling like a failure. The male struggles with feeling like a failure and futility. We're told that he will work the ground in thorns and thistles, and what he builds will be dust. And so he hopes to succeed, he tries to succeed. And he finds resistance. And the temptation then for the husband in the marriage is to recede into passivity. You see that in the first temptation. Adam and Eve, right? Are at the tree. You don't hear anything from Adam, but he's there. He's completely passive. And then when God shows up, who does he address, Eve or Adam? Adam, right? Adam's passivity The female, in turn, she will struggle with loneliness and relational disappointment. She is the creator of relationships. He says pain and childbirth, but again, that's literal, I'm sure. I can't say personally, but I know you women would say, yeah, pain and childbirth. But it's more than that. It's pain in relationship because she has a gift to nurture relationships, sustain them, but finds that it's frustrating. You know the phrase, there's no pain like a mother's pain. The burden she has to bear, it becomes a burden. You find this with Mary. She brings Jesus to the temple. Simeon stands up and says about the sufferings of Christ, a sword will pierce him and pierce your soul too. Her longing for relationship. And then Genesis 3, it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That rule is not a negative connotation because it's used in the next chapter positively. What it's basically saying is sin will introduce competition. The relationship becomes about competition and who wins. And the woman will be tempted to use her power to eclipse her helperness to her husband. And so you have the passivity of the man. You have the woman led to that place. Her desire is, you know, affected. So, you know, how does this maybe look at, for men, it's, you know, the classic man who wants to recede into his man cave. The whole idea of the man cave, right? His place he can go, he can get lost in watching sports, or he can get lost in his career or lost in some hobby. And I would also say abuse is a form of passivity. Because abuse is essentially saying, I can't deal with your strength, so I'm going to shut you down. The woman, on the other hand, will seek to satisfy her loneliness through her husband alone or her kids, or maybe, you know, she tries to escape it by um, going to her career or cleaning the house five times, whatever it would be, she's going to something to try to satisfy that relationship. And you find this played out constantly in the the marriage cliché, right, of uh, the, the, the husband who's AWOL and the wife who's nagging. You see how that happens. He gets passive, and the only way she thinks she can get him out of there is to kind of nag him, but he just recedes more and more. It doesn't work. But what's ingenious about what God does here in his kindness and mercy, the roles that he calls the husband and wife to actually serve to redeem and deliver us from our sin. Quickly. The woman is called to respectful empowerment. Respectful empowerment. She sees her husband struggling with futility in feeling like a failure. And she speaks a word of encouragement to him in the form of respect. And for many men, respect feels like love. And she then feels emboldened. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced that in my marriage. When I want to recede and go back, but Meg then moves in with her power and says, no, you can do this. You need to move on out, even if I fight it. Even if it's you know uh, leading my family spiritually, or being a dad, or using my gifts, or doing something in ministry where I'm like, uh, there's a conflict, I don't want to go deal with it. And so God, using the other to sort of deliver. And for the woman, as she is there in her loneliness and frustration in relationship, the husband moves into loving sacrifice. He lays his, life his, his great task becomes relational, that she might be met and understand. No, there is love. And there is relationships together. And the two roles are meant to transform, again, Dan Allender. A successful marriage is one in which two broken and forgiving people stay committed to one another in a sacrificial relationship in the face of life's chaos. Here's what we need to remember, though. As much, and this is, you know, the the films will lead us, not all of them, that was a, anyway, some films, will lead us to believe, okay, you know, we can find this sort of we, we can get these needs met just by meeting the right person. And Christians, you might get the message today, well, if we just do this right, the ache will go away. It won't go away. It's not going to go away. It, it, believe me, God will work and he'll bless you. But if you're looking for heaven on earth, it's not going to happen. You're going to get proximate joy, proximate love, proximate satisfaction. Because the longing is for heaven. So you go to a wedding and you watch the, the folks get married. While in your heart you might say, if you're single, man, I want to be married. Or if you're married and you're like, man, I wish I could marry that person instead of this person, whatever it would be, (laughs) really the longing ought to be this. Your response ought to be, I can't wait to get to heaven. That's what that wedding should be teaching you. I can't wait to get to heaven until I am consummated with my lover, who is God, who is Christ, and even if you're married, that ought to be your longing. Meg regularly reminds me that she can't wait to live with Jesus instead of me. <laughs> you know, She will, you know, she regularly say, I can't wait to get to heaven. She can't wait to see him, and it's appropriate. Her greater husband. Husband, you know, that's, that's just the way it's got to be. So let me say this to really put a bow on it. Here we are, Pentecost Sunday, which celebrates that Christ is risen and he has sent his Holy Spirit of power and new life and new creation. Can we pray that he might do that in our vision of what marriage is to be? And that 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 might become an attractive thing for a city that is longing for heaven and people that are longing for a heavenly groom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our heavenly groom, Jesus. Thank you for the wedding that comes closer each day. Thank you for what earthly marriage temporarily models when it's done right and how it encourages us and reminds us of what our love will be like with you. Lord, I do pray uh, for those here that are not called uh, to singleness, that you might uh, give them the opportunity in faith that they can enter into marriage. I pray for those here that feel like their marriages are really a burden, that you would encourage them. I pray here that feel like their marriage is going really great, that they would be careful that they don't fall. But most of all, Lord, we long for your coming. In Christ's name, amen.